Hello and welcome back to Cooking Books with me, Jilly Smith, the podcast for food book lovers, where food is the story. This week, we're off on our summer holiday to Slovenia, to the magical land of turquoise rivers and mountains called Dalmatians. Like, I remember we were naked in a mud uh, with nets around the waist and uh, getting, you know, with the fingers looking looking for the clams and then washing them in the sea. I first visited Chef Anna Roche and her husband, Walter Kramer, at their restaurant, Hisha Franco, a couple of years ago. Anna and Walter were first catapulted to stardom after appearing on Netflix Chef's Table in 2016. And by 2017, Anna was crowned Best Female Chef in the World at the 50 Best Awards. On a grey old summer morning in East Sussex, she took me through her four favourite food moments from her debut book, Sun and Rain. But first, I asked her to take me back to Hisha Franco at a Slovenian summer morning. So I woke up this morning and there was a brilliant sun outside. And uh, since with a little bit of breeze, that means um, not too hot, uh, around 26 degrees. And um, because of the breeze, there is no clouds at all. And uh, it's really that sparkling uh, sun that usually is more Mayish. It's around the month of May. And everything is super lush green in this moment uh, because we do have uh, um, like night rains. It means that the nature is getting enough enough uh, um, rain, enough water. But also the rivers are in a very, very good conditions. Rarely any summer is so full of water. Um, even Nadija, the river that is a kilometer from our house, that has like 24 degrees in the summer, is really full. And we have beautiful swimming pools, you know, turquoise rivers, uh, that lush forest. And there is still a little bit of snow in the mount- high in the mountains, so there is like a sparkle of white as well. And then you know that if you climb our mountains, um, already on 1,000 meters, you can spot the Mediterranean. And uh, these days, it's really shining gold because of this little breeze. There is no, no fog on the seaside as well. So you can see from Savudri and Croatia down to Venice. And um, I think, honestly, it's one of those summers that are a little bit nostalgic. There is not so much people around, which makes it even better. Um, well, and then another thing that maybe uh, is going to inspire you, uh, you know, Kobarid area and the Socha Valley still has no cases of covid like in uh, the whole period from uh, February up to now, we didn't have a single case in Kobarid municipality. In the whole valley, just four straight at the beginning, um, which were isolated right away. So it's also very safe. I'm, I mean, I'm not surprised because I have been there. You arranged a wonderful trip for a couple of journalists and me to go, three of us, to spend two, three days in across the, a lot of Slovenia to look at the kind of the ingredients that you have at Hisha Franco. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. But what I experienced was this magical place that felt, it felt like the kind of place where Sleeping Beauty would live. You know, it comes from a different world, a different era. It is cased in uh, a, a sort of a, a romance of a time gone by. It is untouched and it feels like it would be the worst thing in the world to bring tourists to your beautiful place with our disease, our pandemic. You know, I'm not surprised that the Cobra doesn't have any I- examples of COVID. It feels clean. It feels pure. Um, 
having said that, you have to have tourism. You have to have people coming to the restaurant. How are you coping? So uh, we're actually doing pretty well. Uh, we were um, locked down very quickly on March 11. Um, uh, the reason was a very quick lockdown um, because, you know, we are bordering Italy and Italy was so drastically increasing. And um, so, and then Italians, instead of like respecting quarantine, they would be passing the border and spending time in Slovenia. So the Slovenian prime minister, like in two days, locked down the country and put us in um, a lockdown. So restaurants had to close. And um, I must say there is something about the discipline that Slovenians have. Uh, I think we really, the whole Slovenia managed the situation really well and we really respected the rules. So it never went really bad. Um, we were able to uh, walk, to run, to be outside. Um, for instance, my restaurant team has been um, locked down in a group lockdown because nobody, we are very international, nobody was able to go home. But can you imagine 30 young people We actually stayed only together. We never, like, no one went even to do the shopping. We got the delivery here. Uh, we did foraging, but all together. So we organized the house in a way, like one corner was Ibiza. So we would, like, in the evening uh, in the front of the laundry, Uh, where we could see the sunset over the village. We would be putting lounge music like from Ibiza and uh, having, uh, having some drinks. And then we, were, we had like, we have a table tennis table. So we were doing table tennis tournaments and um, all between us. And I must say that it has been difficult for me maybe a bit because I was a kind of a psychiatrist, psychoanalyst and mom to not only my family, but to 30 plus. But it connected us a lot. Uh, that's why when we when we actually reopened in beginning of June, um, it has been uh, pretty emotional and very difficult, like learning how to walk again. So uh, Slovenia reopened the restaurant in um, in on May 18. But we actually decided already at the beginning of May to follow a little bit example of Mauro Colagreco in Mirazur to fix one day for us. Um, because we needed to fill in the reservations, not knowing which borders are going to open. And we were very lucky because around um, at the beginning of June, they reopened borders with Croatia, with Hungary, with Austria. So we at least could have some base of um, clients. Because, I mean, when I came to see you, you were getting um, visitors from America. People were flying to Venice, taking a helicopter over to Hishafranco just to eat with the world's best female chef 2017 to see the couple who were on chef's table. I mean, that is the draw, isn't it? Now, obviously, you're not getting the American visitors. You're not getting that kind of international clientele. I mean, it must make a huge difference to you. Well, that's the 20, 25% of clients that is actually missing. But what is fun is that we are rediscovering a regional client. Um, I'm talking about a completely new client, like Hungarians, Germans, a lot of Hungarians, really a big surprise, amazing clients. Uh, Slovenians are rediscovering Hisha Franco because finally they can get a table, which is something new for them. And I must say that the numbers are a lot higher from what we expected, knowing that United States, England, um, also until two days ago, uh, Belgium, Netherlands, which is our big basin for, of clients. Um, and then talking about Scandinavia, 
which is also like our July, August, September client, they were closed up to two days ago. So um, I must say that it's surprising how we are rediscovering a regional client and how the regional client is rediscovering Hisha Franco. And I must say, with all humbleness, so beautiful. And I think if there is anything good we can bring out of this horrible corona situation is that, you know, you somehow redefine yourself and who is intelligent is going to survive. Yeah, and localism is the answer. I mean, we've rediscovered what being at home is all about, what eating off the land, what growing your own vegetables is all about, but also sort of rediscovering the people around you, neighbourhoods. Um, and it sounds like, you know, you're getting your neighbourhood to finally see you because you have had issues with that, haven't you? You've been the queen of Slovenia to the world, but actually Slovenians haven't really taken to your success in the same way. Well, the reason is because, um, you know, Slovenians uh, don't really understand gastronomy as uh, something of that importance. Um, you never forget that we've been through a period um, that was uh, a hard period uh, of socialism, communism, when uh, we actually lost aristocracy. And aristoc aristocracy is the one who is usually paying a big respect to the table. So we finally uh, seem like a country of peasants which is not nothing negative about that, actually. That's why we have so amazing uh, products. But, you know, um, a peasant needs a food which fits him. It's not, uh, not the food that is art. So it's a very slow process. And to talk about someone who is queen of the country outside but is not almost getting enough respect in its own country, um, there is always uh, an uh, um, objective reason. And, uh, well, that is the one. Especially because I think we are a little bit hypocritic sometimes, saying, oh, you know, that kind of fine dining gastronomy, you just pay, uh, you know, you spend money for what? For something that you don't really have at the end. Um and I'm saying like, but this is a culture and, but slowly, slowly, uh, we are learning it and there is more and more foodies in Slovenia. So I think um, we live on this wave um, that is bringing uh, um, changes, which is really beautiful. And well, also thanks to my work. And I don't know if you know, but uh, Slovenia a month ago got uh, the first edition of Michelin Guide. Um, yeah, so it was supposed to happen just at the beginning of Corona on March 13. But then finally they released the guide on uh, June, what was it, June 16, um, for the first time in a history, which I think shows, showcases already how much, um, uh, uh, how much the situation has changed. Because if you have the edition of a Michelin guide, I have it here. Um, it's actually a printed one, which is really beautiful. It means that the country is waking up uh, gastronomy-wise. I mean, Hungary was very similar uh, in the 1950s, exactly. 1960s. There was no gastronomy. It was taken away. Food was seen as bourgeois and, and nothing to do with the socialism that was coming in. But it's come back. And now Budapest is, is, a, is a wonderfully gastronomic city. And, and, you know, they're falling in love with their food. So I, I imagine that Slovenia is, is just behind. Let's go to the book, though. The book is a love letter to Slovenia. And you've chosen four food moments that take us through your Slovenia. Let's start with your first one to Istria. Tell us about the childhood that you spent in Istria. So, um, you know, 
I live in mountains, but my mother is from the seaside and she always had this huge nostalgia of the sea. And like even living in a mountain, she, she would be cooking seafood or fish every day, like feeding her nostalgia with eating, uh, uh, eating the flavors of the sea. And um, therefore, that uh, month that we spend every, every year in Istria, uh, in our little stone house on an Istrian countryside, was actually really something because uh, you know something that I didn't give to my children a lot of parents are not giving to their children uh, is that Robinson Robinson way of life that my parents were somehow recreating for me my sister and for them so we would be like helping farmers to pick tomatoes uh, onions we would never buy anything um, anything at all uh, we went to pick the milk at the local farmer uh, milking the cows ourselves but then during the day we would be spending whole days on the seaside uh, with our little boat that we had picking oysters picking mussels picking uh, clams you found a pearl in the oyster I did, I did, and not once, really, not once. And the funny thing is, like, that uh, I remember so much um, uh, in the morning, like, uh, around 10, we would be waiting for the fishermen to come from the sea to get the freshly caught sardines. And then um, we were always on the wild beaches, and we would be, like, grilling the sardines on um, those wild beaches, washing the tomatoes directly in the sea so they got salty, and that would be our lunch. And just before going back to our little stone house, we would dive uh, to get whatever was for dinner, whether that were masses or clams. Like I remember we were naked in a mud uh, with nets around the uh, waist and uh, getting, you know, with the fingers looking, looking for the clams and then washing them in the sea. So everything was so um, nature-oriented. And that sea flavor, uh, original sea flavor, such authentic one, uh, remained with me forever. That flavor of tomato, of mussel, of the oyster, of the clams, of... Um, I don't know how you call them in English, but we call them sea dates and it's a clam that is now prohibited because you need to go underwater and uh, uh, with a hammer actually hit a stone to pit pick with pinces out like little um, uh, those long uh, um, date mussels that have amazing sweet so flavor. like razor clams similar form but they are a little bit browner and um, the shell is harder and but the flavor is very very different um, so I would say what Istria gave me is uh, uh, I am nostalgic for the sea as my mom has always been but it gave me uh, that pristine um, understanding of uh, what the sea flavor is. And this is something that you strongly feel it in Hisha Franco. Yeah, your mother in particular came from a very aristocratic background, didn't she? Um, I mean, the family, obviously under Tito, you know, lost a lot. But the sensibility of taste and pleasure came from that sort of aristocratic place but your parents were very bohemian with it weren't they well my parents were um well my mother really comes from a very aristocratic family they uh, it's a shupuk family which comes from dalmatia but they are mixed with austro-hungarian like it was austro-hungarian empire so we were all a little bit mixed up and that Chupuk family had uh, um, was owning Kirka waterfalls, which is one of the national parks now in Croatia. 
Croatia, one of the most beautiful spots I've ever seen. And uh, if I go to Šibenik now, to one of the central Dalmatian towns, everybody would be connecting me with this Šupuk family, which is um, still uh, of a strong importance. And uh, then, of course, with the... Uh, with, um, nationalization after the second world war they actually lost everything and so uh, but they they remained aristocratic in their mind and in their habits so my my grandmother like she never accepted it like she really she lived i think she lived in her dreams all the time uh, in her, her childhood um, so later on my mother studied uh, languages in ljubljana where she met my father who comes from um, a very rich family from the central Slovenia, which also with national nationalization lost everything. And so they enjoy their life. A, a future doctor, a future journalist would be like a, working as students on the speedboat, which is uh, connecting Istria with Venice, um, smuggling cigarettes as far as I remember. And uh, with that, earning enough money to be able to be, build this stone house. They build it themselves. And after 50 years, for the first time, now this house is being uh, having some uh, revolution, some rebuilding. But all those 50 years, this house has always been exactly the same as my parents, as students build it, stone after stone, sometimes so badly put together that you could see through, um, uh, like a Swedish style of um, bathroom, you know, showering on the floor with uh, small mosquitoes that my mom, my mom would be killing and then with uh, uh, a Scott leaving them on the balcony balcony um, uh, balcony walls no on the uh, bathroom walls uh, signing them with names so every mosquito had a name and I ca- it's fun and that was really I think uh, they really uh, gave us a beautiful childhood it sounds it from from the book let's stay with your your parents your father is your second food moment and you love to hunt with him again something we would associate with aristocracy in this country but actually it's very much about living off the land isn't it well i think a a man on a countryside in slovenia is only accepted by the society when he becomes a hunter so um you must know that we live in a zoo here we have abundant wildlife and sometimes people say oh and then poor roebuck and i'm like yeah do you know like really uh, even if i go in on a day run Usually, roebucks, deers would be hiding during the during the day, but the, even on a day run, I I I feel in a zoo. Like there is a rabbit, and there is a fox, and there is a, a, there is groups of roebucks. They're not even afraid anymore. But during the night, like it's like in Australia with kangaroos, so we all have have to have big cars because every five meters uh, you meet animals on uh, on the streets. I don't think there is a single person in our team who hasn't had a crash with an animal already. So. So being a hunter in this kind of situation is somehow spontaneous. The hunt is super regulated. The um, Slovenian Hunting Association is one of the European ones. So the, I mean, the regulations are strict uh, also period-wise. But uh, I think for us, eating a uh, game, hunting is something that really belongs to the men's world. A man is a hunter. And it has nothing to do with aristocracy. So I think my father, who came to the valley as a doctor, 
and that's why we moved to the valley because he actually got a position as a pneumologist here. Uh, he was accepted by the society because he became a hunter. And these days, oh my God, he is um, in the mountains. No joking. He's 75 years old and he's chasing a Capricorn. He has a huge uh, photographic camera with him. It's not about, because hunting is not about killing, you must know. It's about observing the wildlife. So in this moment, he's apparently sleeping in one of those uh, wooden houses on uh, on the, the hides. trees. Hides. Hides, uh, searching for one. And, uh, well, yeah, I don't even know where precisely he's in this moment. But he he did kill Roebuck. Uh, he he used to hang them, uh, you know, on the walls. And you have a picture of a roe deer uh, in the book, which you know I live amongst roe deer here in in my meadows, and, and I found that very confronting. But it's very real. And what I got from that trip to Slovenia, where your husband Walter was taking us around, was was that th- there's no room for squeamishness in your relationship with animals. It's a necessary culling operation as well. Uh, that you are stewards of the land or the the hunters are the stewards of the land. I asked Walter, actually, as we were driving through the mountains um, about that regulation. And I said, you know, surely people are just going to go out and, you know, shoot a deer or whatever. And he said, people in the valley will hear the sound of the gunshot and word will go around and everybody knows everyone. And everyone knows who's missing and who's in the mountain at that particular time. So nobody can really get away with killing any more than their quota. And that's important, isn't it? Well, that's what I said to you. I think we are very disciplined about whatever is told to us to do and about the hunting is the same. But you know about that photo in the book about um, roebuck hanging? That's actually very traditional to put a roebuck or a deer, um, a spruce in the mouth and then hang, hang it to make it rest. Um, it's actually something that I remember since ever and that, you know, that um, bloody bloody smell of, of the hunter's clothes, I, I have it somewhere in my DNA. Um, but I think I really never considered hunting as killing, but as, come on, guys, the human being has always been a hunter, always been a fisherman, always been a forager. It's something that is, uh, comes very natural. Yeah, you know what we're like in Britain. We're just way too animal friendly for that. We we have a different relationship with animals, and it's interesting. But you know, it does feed into your food very much. Your food, the you have wonderful tasting menus that are the story of your relationship with Slovenia. And when there is boar or venison on the plate, it's because of a time in your life, but also a season uh, when it's appropriate to put it there. Well. You know, my menus, um, there is only one, actually, is a reflection of uh, self-reflection, which is um, a kind of my personality, which is strongly represented in the menu, and I think you can strongly feel it. Um, That's why I am uh, uh, one of the few chefs um, uh, of this level that doesn't uh, understand someone else entering with ideas uh, or changes uh, to the menu. And my sous chef, um, uh, Leonardo Fonseca, is making sure that uh, nothing happens on the menu um, without me, uh, not only without my permission, but only Anna can touch the things. And that's something that is really important when the food is so personal. 
On the other side, the menu is a huge reflection of the um, of the territory and therefore also the season, which is not easy because uh, when people ask me, hey, uh, how many times per year do you change the menu? And I say, every day. They say, what? I say, every day, because um, you get what the nature gives you. Uh, moon goes up, moon goes down, uh, the product change. And um, this is a natural and spontaneous um, reflection when you cook so close to the nature. It means also you need to be very creative, very elastic, because, for instance, today I got uh, um, my daily supply from our mountain farm and it's completely different products from last week because uh, the season has gone. So there are two, three courses that need a big change or even a complete change. So I think it is really beautiful. It requires a lot of attention, and but this is what makes cooking magic, I think. Yes, absolutely. And I met a lot of the people who produce your products, including uh, the cheeses and the natural wines. Oh, my goodness, that night at the Glenich um, Natural Wine Place. Unbelievable. Uh, wonderful family. Um, it takes us to our third food moment, Hotel Moo. Uh, tell us about the relationship that you had since you were a child, with the pasture land that leads to this amazing dairy product that comes out of Slovenia that you use so beautifully at Hisha Franco? Well, it has to do again with my father and his role in a society, uh, this uh, rural society, because a doctor, especially a pneumologist, um, is, very, is, is a kind of a centre of, uh, of life. And that's one of the most respected men. And therefore, and also by him being a hunter, it means he had a confirmation in a society of men. Um, we would have like access to a lot of things that usually people don't. And that was also the farmer's life or shepherd's life. Um, I would, at the beginning of summer, spend weekends uh, with my parents sleeping with shepherds on hay. And that's not joke. This is how I first time discovered I actually have allergies. And uh, so my father would be going hunting like early in the morning and me and my sister spending time with shepherds like milking cows or helping them bringing cows out to the pastures. But there were some really romantic uh, relationships um, between uh, me, my sister and shepherds. They took us like a little bit there like the doctor's daughters, almost their daughters. So they would be sharing with us like a, a, a freshly made uh, ricotta, uh, the uh, album in ricotta, which is actually, um, uh, it's not a cottage cheese, but it's, uh, you call it, it's a curd. Um, so I remember like they allowed us to climb on the wooden, uh, wooden small wooden stairs to be able to reach in the wooden barrel the, the still warm cottages with hands like this. Or um, little moments like when they were recutting, forming the cheese and they would be uh, recutting um, it in a precise form. All these like chewy, uh, chewy recuts that usually were for the chickens. They always said like, oh, the doctors, daughters are coming. Uh, we have to store them and instead of chewing them because they're very chewy, we would be like eating that. And actually, Hisha Franco, in this moment, we are doing an amazing thing with those recuts that usually are really finishing in three cows for the chickens. So there is a lot of um, sweet moments, um, hiking in the mountains, uh, thunderstorms in the mountains that are pretty unforgettable. 
When you came to Hishafranco, obviously, you know, Walter's family owned Hishafranco as a, just a neighborhood restaurant. Uh, you came in, uh, you had a relationship with Walter, you got married, and you took over the restaurant, the cooking, uh, as somebody who'd never cooked before. But this kind of history, this relationship that you had had growing up with the food from the land, how much do you think that you were aware of how much that influenced your cooking in the early days? Because I know that you took to cooking like you took to everything else you've done in your life. You studied it. You were determined to really master it. But it feels like there was this underbelly that was actually prodding at your knowledge. I think I, when I started cooking, I was mature enough to understand what I want. And dedication to the territory was one of the strongest ones. And I clearly remember there was a Spanish chef which visited us just at the beginning of my cooking. And he was like, but why do you stick so much to the mountain products? And he was like, go, you know, go start, you know, enjoying the seafood and cooking seafood. There is so much space in there. And I was like, I took his hand and we were sitting by the stream and I was like, look around. Can you show me um, anything that remembers you to see? Because I needed to start like that. Because you have to know that in all those years, I needed to build up a food chain, um, the whole uh, chain of producers, because Hisha Frank is such a remote place that it's actually super difficult to uh, to reach and to reach also uh, for the suppliers. So what we really needed to do was to knock on the doors of the farmers to get a product. And we started in between the region because um, that was the logical start. And then today I say that when you stand on the top of the mountain, you see from the Mediterranean to uh, to all the meadows, to the rivers, to uh, the mountains, to the forests, to the gardens. And those are the places that we source from. And it's very logical. But this is built step by step. So I think um, I when I started cooking, I was actually mature enough to know, to understand what I was doing. Yeah. By that time, of course, you had actually started traveling around the world and your fourth food moment is the big world, uh, which is one of the chapters in, in your book. Um, you and Walter, well, in the in the big world chapter, you talk about that moment where you first went to Africa and it set off a love of travel that you and Walter and later with the kids took very seriously indeed. Well, I started traveling when I was, I think, 16 or 17. And since then, I have been traveling all the time. So when I met Walter, I said, listen, even if you go bankrupt, but traveling remains and traveling remained. And my children are super traveled now. They traveled, I don't know, uh, with a backpack, the whole Madagascar and uh, uh, Burma when it was still closed and Vietnam and uh, Japan and uh, interesting countries, uh, beautiful countries. What I really wanted to give to children is the open-mindedness, which in uh, like so close societies as ours um, uh, is a rare thing. And I think you accept the world, understand the world in a very different way um, when you have this social social awareness. So um, my children have been probably 20 times in Cabo Verde and Cabo Verde Islands because we have a friend who lives there. Uh, when there was no tourism yet, they would be playing with uh, uh, with the, the local community of children, not even understanding that they are so different. They, I mean, their background is different, their color, skin color is different. They never even and 
saw that. And I think uh, speaking English uh, at the age of five, six, as though it's their native language, or learning Creole or Portuguese or Spanish or Italian, um, that's that's a largeness of a horizon of a, of a young person. And I think what traveling gives you is this open-mindedness, and uh, that is really important and beautiful. Um, but of course, uh, you know, today during Corona, talking about that makes me be very nostalgic because um, I usually take 150 flights per year this year. Well, you know, I uh, came from New York just before the lockdown, like two days before the lockdown, three days. And um, and since then, I'm just at home, which is beautiful because I'm re-evaluating home uh, and restaurant in a very different, more personalized way. But on the other side, like, uh, I think my life has changed so much uh, from uh, an everyday traveler to someone who is even scared to go uh, to Ljubljana by car. Well, exactly. And then, of course, there's the whole issue of climate change. You know, we, we used to hop on a, a plane and travel all around the world. And, and my goodness, I've had some wonderful adventures, too. But but now I'm only going to go by car and by train and I'm going to experience Europe. I'm going to rediscover the places on my doorstep. But actually, you know, yes, there's all that. There's that wonderful sensibility that you must bring to absolutely everything you do and certainly to your cooking with that big worldliness. And gosh, you've eaten all over the world. But I love that moment when you when your best friend was leaving for Tanzania and you're sitting in your bedroom and you're looking with her at that globe and you're you can't get your head around it. Take us back to that moment, looking at that globe, wondering how many days it's going to take and then what it was like actually going to see her there for the first time. So Tina was my best friend and her family was moving to Tanzania. Well, I think I was 15 and she must have been 14. And, you know, that was a time um, that nobody was traveling but especially not people who were living in socialistic or communistic times like uh, traveling was meaning yeah going to the beach in Croatia even Italy was a little bit far away and um, yeah so when Tina said uh, we go to we are moving to Tanzania well your heart breaks because your best friend is living but then you don't even know how to spot Tanzania and I remember we had this globe and we were turning it around to try to find it and it looks like my god thousands of days away and I couldn't even imagine what it means to reach it imagine if two years ago I went to for a conference in Australia and stayed there 36 hours and got back um, that is, uh, I don't know what, 30 years later, but at that time that meant like, uh, I don't know how you reach that place. So I remember we took a train in Trieste and reached uh, Rome um, to take a flight with Ethiopian Airlines uh, via Addis Ababa, via Rwanda. Uh, to finally, I think after 40 hours of flying, um, reaching, um, reaching Dar es Salaam. And uh, Tanzania in those times was not a touristic spot. It has been like uh, a real African country, one of the poorest ones, with a little white community uh, which was uh, working there. Um, some uh, some diplomatic life and some uh, some white people having like companies or uh, there, but that, that was it. So I really had a moment, uh, I had a chance to discover real Africa, especially because by the time we reached them, I think they were living there 
more than a year already. Um, so um, I don't know. Uh, I think it has been uh, one of those moments or days or months uh, in your life that you never forget because um, you are brutally uh, brought to a completely different world that you can really understand as a completely different world. And when I got back home, I think I got that um, in Italian you say mal d'Africa, like Africa sickness. And since then, uh, I think I never stopped wishing uh, to travel again. Um, but Africa is a special place, especially when you see the real Africa. Um, I'm not talking about, you know, tourist trips, but the real Africa, uh, the real life. I remember a lunch in um, in the slums of Dar dinner in the slums of Dar es Salaam, where Tina brought me for her birthday to um, uh, to an um, Ethiopian uh, restaurant, but it was in slums. So uh, I think, like uh, today, as a mother, I don't know uh, what I would say to my children when they decide to do something like that. But I think uh, uh, I really had a chance to see um, things as original as possible and I will always be glad for it. Therefore, when I travel, that's why I always say I like traveling, even backpacking uh, or hanging around with locals to understand the real uh, real essence of local life. Yeah. So one of my last trips was actually um, Taiwan, just before the lockdown, before going to New York, I did uh, Taiwan, uh, Hong Kong and Bangkok for work. But I was working with locals and I, I I understood that that far away African experience where I understood what really local is uh, made uh, sure that I always search for it wherever I am. Yeah, it's a liminal space, isn't it? It's a you go through this portal uh, where you will life will never be the same again when you have experienced traveling around the world. This new era that we're going to go into, it will have changed enormously. We don't even know how it will have changed the way that our children will live. I wonder if the, the fact that you live in a beautiful place where a turquoise river on white stones weaves through the Socha Valley down to where you are, the green green pastures the 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 natural way of living is the future and whether our children will go into a world where they are appreciating actually what's under their noses what do you feel about that as a world traveler well you know during corona and then uh, also after everything opened i honestly started discovering slovenia and I discovered beautiful parts as Kras region or uh, Vipauska Dolina, uh, where I would never even think about going because usually I always, I don't know, um, try to go far away because I think far away is what relaxes. But then you understand that just around the corner, there is even more beautiful places that you don't know about. So um, I, I'm not really sure how much things will change on a long term, on a short term. I think, I don't really believe that it's going to be so brutal. But on a short term, we're absolutely going to discover what is around us. And that is beautiful. Thanks for listening. Do rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to join the mailing list, pop over to jillysmith.com and sign up. And I'll see you next week as we run away with Gifford Circus. <laughs>